Hey, uh, does anybody out there know what time it is right now? Anybody at all? Look at my clock here. Oh, almost one o'clock in the morning. You know what that means. That means it's time to listen to Nocturnal Distractions. I'm your host, Kendra, and I like true crime. So that's what this podcast is about. Mostly just true crime. Some mysteries thrown in. I'm that girl that goes to sleep or tries to go to sleep listening to podcasts about serial killers. But I decided to start a podcast and maybe help other people like myself that also like to fall asleep listening to true crime podcasts or documentaries. So tune in, hear what I have to say. Hopefully I'll bring you some new cases that you haven't heard of before, some new views. I'm going to dig into some psychology stuff with serial killers and other types of perpetrators. And I'd say I'm going to head to bed now, but we all know that's not true at all. I'm going to be up until 5 o'clock in the morning, and then I'll go to bed. Hence the name Nocturnal Distractions. I will catch you guys later. Uh, this has been an irritation for the sheriff's office that we've never been able to close this case. So you guys just heard a trailer from Kendra from Nocturnal Distractions. So Kendra has recently taken over doing the complete hosting duties of this podcast on her own. And let me tell you, it's going to do nothing but boost what she does and how she does it. Because Kendra is amazing. If you guys will go back to my TikToks, there is one TikTok where I was listening to Nocturnal Distractions and Kendra's Alexa or something was talking back to her as she was sharing a case. And I got to say, it, it just, that podcast was amazing. And I am so looking forward to where her podcast is going to go because Kendra is amazing. I love Nocturnal Distractions. I love Kendra. And it is just going to go up from here. The other thing that you will have heard was one of the brief snippets about the case that we're going to hear. And it is from one of the investigators on the case from Great Bend. And it really just, let's just kick this off, is that this case is where these investigators are patting themselves on the back about the fact that they were able to finally solve this case that it has, in their words, irritated this police department. But you know what? The death and the horrific shooting of a young woman should do something a lot more than irritate your police department. So hearing the fact that he utilized a word such as irritate. Now I know sometimes when I am talking in my podcast, it's hard for me sometimes on the fly to come up with the word and I'm not choosing the best word for that situation. But when you are up in this media frenzy and you are releasing this new evidence 
and you have arrested somebody in one of the oldest cases that you've arrested someone for in Great Bend, and you say, oh, this case has really irritated us. And it is the loss of a young woman who was a nursing student and a mother. It just infuriated me to hear the fact that he chose those words. So let's get into the case. Guys, welcome back to another episode of Crime Scene and Cupcakes. I'm Marianne, dog mom, baker, true crime podcast maker, and again, I might sound a little under the weather, and that's because I still am. And it's kind of interesting that I happen to be under the weather while I'm talking about this case, because if it wasn't for the detective having a case of COVID, who knows if this case ever would have gotten solved. So this case is about Mary Robin Walter from Great Bend, Kansas. She was a 23-year-old wife and mother who was attending nursing school at Barton County Community College in Great Bend, Kansas. Then on January 24, 1980, someone came in and violently ended Mary Robin Walter's life. Pictures of Robin, as she preferred to be called, showed her with beautiful, long, shiny red hair parted down the center and a beautiful toothy grin that would have lit up her patient's rooms. As I said, Robin was attending her second semester of nursing school. She also worked at a rest home slash hospital called Great Bend Manor. And her husband had told reporters about how she had recently been um, taking care of the elderly at that hospital and how much she really enjoyed doing that. She also was able to, before she had lost her life that Tuesday before, she had been able to help deliver her first baby in that hospital. And she was so flippin' excited. Now, as somebody who started my career before I went into law enforcement, I was a nurse and I worked in labor and delivery. And let me tell you, it is such an overwhelming feeling to be present in that room with families as they're bringing new life into the world. So I understand that feeling that Robin had. It's, it's so cool, guys. It's so incredible. Now, it was not a usual thing for Robin to ever be late picking up her daughter, Pamela. Pamela was five years old, and Pamela would go to the babysitter as Robin would go to school and her husband would go to work. Robin's classes would end about 3 p.m., and Pamela was there. Pamela picked up her daughter without fail. And Robin's mother would say she had talked to Robin on the phone recently and nothing sounded amiss. Everything sounded like it was status quo for the Walter family. Everything was going as normal. 
Then, on January 24th, 1980, Robin Walter's husband arrives home to find Robin's body. Robin had been shot multiple times. Now, they lived in a place, it was called the Nelson Trailer Park in Great Bend, Kansas. And at that time, they weren't even connected to the 911 system. It was such a rural area. So he was trying to contact emergency help so that he could get Robin the help that she needed. Now, Robin's husband had told reporters um, with the Wichita Eagle that they often left their doors unlocked and their keys in their car. And he said, oh, my God, when we look back, this was such a stupid thing that we did. But this was rural Kansas. We didn't worry about anything being wrong. And they had alluded to the fact that Robin was shot nine to, nine to 12 times with a 22 caliber weapon. And in these articles, they allude to the fact that this was the family's weapon. This was Robin and her husband's weapon that they were, that she was shot with. So the killer didn't bring this weapon with them. This weapon was in the home. So they, the police had vetted it was not Robin's husband who was the perpetrator. And they had been able to figure all of that out. And over the years, law enforcement had offered a reward of $1,000. News reporters had gone to law enforcement and they had asked questions. And law enforcement had said, we don't have any idea of who the suspect is, that there was no sexual assault, there was no other sign of violence at the scene except for the shooting. So I looked back and I found all of these articles and i cannot find where they found anything there was nothing written by any of these reporters that stated that law enforcement had a clue of anything else that was going on and again when robin's husband came home he found her in the back bedroom and that's what he came home to so this is a horrific case that haunted her family and haunted this town. And, you know, like I'd said, there were numerous articles written. There were writ articles written in the Great Bend area. There were articles written up here in Wichita, which is about 86 miles away from Great Bend. And they're all trying to find answers to this case this case that was so daunting and she was such a beautiful nursing student she was a mother she was a wife why would someone go in there and shoot her you know first of all just shooting a woman with no sexual assault this case made no sense and it it just it flabbergasted the community now, again, as I've told you guys, I've worked in this arena for 20 years. And I know that as law enforcement, you have to hold some things back from the media. 
But I also know the media can be one of your most useful tools. They can help you. If you have something that you know, but you're having a hard time getting the evidence out there, putting something out there, you can do something to warn your community that there is a predator out there. Great Bend did not do this. And we're going to talk about it. So then what gets me is, okay, you've got these cold cases and then you've got these social media tools that start to develop. What I don't understand, and again, this is somebody who knows about these fields, why we weren't using social media as a tool and developing Facebook pages for these cold cases. Because so many people are driven to our Facebooks and Instagram pages, Twitter, all, we're addicted to social media. If you give cold cases a home on the social media sites, it shouldn't have to be the family's job. So if law enforcement had utilized these sites, they may have been able to help prevent what happened. So, like I said, they would be able to prevent what happened. So here's where things changed. Recently, Barton County Sheriff Brian Bellander, I'm hoping I'm saying his name correctly. If I'm not, I, I apologize, Sheriff. Um, he said that earlier this year when Barton County Sheriff's Office Detective Sergeant Adam Hales was recovering from COVID in April of 2022, he decided to review the case file. And after taking a fresh look at the case, it became evident that some of the information had been initially overlooked and that some information had even been added to the case. So this was unknown to original investigators, but that's what happens. You pick up a cold case. Sergeant Lynch even showed us that. Investigators will pick up these cold cases, pull them out, take a look to Adam, add to them, look at the information, and put them back up. He showed us this. This is what happens in a cold case. But what this tells me is that these officers were not communicating with each other. No one knew what was in these cold evidence boxes. No one had an idea what was in the box. The seven deadly sins, live and in the flesh. What's in the box? Brad Pitt, seven? No. But as they continue to say during this press conference, they decided to hold to pat each other on the back. With the help of additional detectives assigned to the case, the sheriff's office tracked down numerous individuals 
and conducted interviews as far away as the Pacific Northwest, while also working in collaboration with the Kansas Bureau of Investigation. In October of this year, new evidence was obtained that allowed the Sheriff's Office to submit the case to the Barton County Attorney. Now that's Levi Morris who belongs, who works with the Barton County Attorney's Office. Now Bellander and Morris both declined at this press conference to release any additional information because they said that this new evidence, yeah, I'm doing air quotes, new evidence, that it might mess with the integrity of the case. So they had said that they'll just save that for court and they're not going to comment at this time. So Morris concluded that the evidence was sufficient enough to obtain an arrest warrant and that there was a gentleman that was taken into custody by Kansas Bureau of Investigation agents on Thursday in Oxford, Kansas. So, after 42 years and 10 months, which it's believed that this is the oldest homicide arrest in the state of Kansas. So, Bellander added that this case had been open for his entire law enforcement career. Now, Bellander, who began his career with the Sheriff's Department in 1982, he credited the hard work of his detectives for making the arrest possible after more than four decades. I'm going to stop and take a breath because, yeah, that just pisses me off. But we're going to go on here. He said that a lot of investigators have tried to close the case and were unable at the time to get the information they needed even though the earlier comments sound like the information was in the box if people had followed up on it. He stated that my group of detectives that I named worked very hard on this. This was a matter of the right people at the right place at the right time. So in other words, it was a detective getting COVID who decided to take his downtime and review an old cold case. And again, I understand lack of manpower. So you're sick. Now you've got the time on your back to review this case. Now, the NBC affiliate KSN decided to talk to Pamela Walter, who was Robin's daughter. And she said she had already forgiven her mother's killer a long time ago. She said she already knew who had done it, and she knew he had not been convicted of it, but they knew who did it. She said that her father had discovered his wife's body, and she had only been five years old at the time of the death, but for years she had nightmares that she was the one who had been shot to death. She said, I blocked a lot of it because knowing how many times my mother was shot, I had nightmares as a child up until the age of about 12. Now, she it's so sweet that she still wears her mother's wedding ring. She also noted that she found closure a long time ago and that the arrest didn't change how she felt. 
<clears throat> I need to take a moment. And you guys are going to hear how I feel about this in a second. But I'm going to allow the time for the family of this victim. She goes on to say, I think my dad would be relieved. I just hope that the suspect is sorry for what he's done and that he's remorseful. But even if he's not, he can't change my heart as I forgave him a long time ago. Now, Robin's niece, Leslie Schrag, also commented on this arrest in a statement to KWCH. And she said, we are grateful for the detective's efforts to bring Robin's murder to justice. Robin was truly beautiful inside and out. Schrag said the impact of Walter's death is still being felt by the family. The world was robbed of her presence and will never know how she could have shaped our lives. So this news is bittersweet. Many of those who knew Robin are gone. Her parents, her husband, and a sister will not get to share in our collective relief that Robin's case will have a conclusion. Now, the gentleman who they suspect committed this crime is being held at the Barton County Jail on a $500,000 bond. So let's talk about the gentleman who they say committed this crime. His name is Stephen Hanks. He is now 68 years old, and he is facing charges of second-degree murder in the 1980 death of Mary Robin Walter. Prior to this arrest, he was arrested and convicted of criminal trespassing, battery, and attempted rape after he broke into a co-worker's home and repeatedly started kissing and fondling her. He has also spent time in prison for another crime. He was arrested in 1981 and charged with rape, battery, robbery, and burglary. He was sentenced in 1983 and discharged in 1993. These are for online records from the Kansas Department of Corrections. In March of 1983, Hanks was convicted of felonies, attempted rape, aggravated burglary, aggravated and aggravated robbery in connection with a Thanksgiving Day incident in 1981, misdemeanor criminal trespassing that took place in July of the same year. Hanks faced trial on those charges in December of 1982, but a deadlock jury resulted in the second proceeding. He appealed his convictions shortly after his trial, but in January of 1985, the Kansas Supreme Court affirmed Hanks' conviction on the charges. He was paroled in Kansas on August of 1991 and was discharged from parole on December of 1993. On September 4th, 2002, police in Great Bend, sorry, I'm jumping ahead. Let me back up for a minute. So as we can see, this guy had a laundry list 
of attacking women and committing crime. Crimes that he continued to commit after he committed the crime against Robin. Now, police are now saying, oh, yeah, we pretty much suspected him from the beginning, but we could not get the evidence together. Nowhere did they utilize the media. They continued to say they had no clue. If they were holding this to the vest for some reason, they could have done something to protect their community. To protect that co-worker. I am so angry when I see these cold cases. And the reason I get so angry at the lack of movement in these cold cases is because we don't know if the person who committed the crime that has gone cold is going on to commit additional crimes against people. That they are going on to hurt others. And that is why I am so passionate to try to make sure that we find them. We don't know what they are continuing to do. We don't know what they're capable of. We don't know if they're escalating. What truly makes me angry is when I see the Great Bend Police Department patting themselves on the back in this case. Is Let's remember, we still have the case of the Dolly Madison Bakery Outlet Murders. On September 4th of 2002, around 8 p.m. in Great Bend, Kansas, the police responded to Dolly Madison Bakery and found two women dead in the business. The victims were identified as Mandy Alexander, 24, a store employee, and Mary Drake, 79, a customer. The two victims were found by a truck driver who stopped to make a delivery. Both victims were in the back of the store and their throats were slit. Money from the cash register was missing, but Drake's purse was still on the counter. A witness described seeing a man about six foot, one inch tall, weighing 175 pounds, walking away from the business. The person of interest had collar length, light brown hair, and a slight beard. Now, the KBI recently said they discovered a male sample of DNA on one of the victims, but so far there has been no match and no arrest made. A family member we have done a recent podcast with and we'll be doing some additional podcasting and we have some additional petitions and stuff that we will be having coming out with them on this case. But we have got to be holding our law enforcement accountable. We have not forgotten about these cold cases, but it seems like sometimes they have. 
especially when I hear them say, okay, well, we have COVID and we picked up the box and it seems like the evidence was there all along. We need to hold our law enforcement accountable, but we also need to hold ourselves accountable. It is our job to be sharing these cases and reminding law enforcement that we are watching and that we want these cases solved. If we don't share these cases, if we don't remind law enforcement that we are watching and that we want them to get these cases solved, they'll just continue to go status quo. It's our job as well to share information on these cases. It's our information. It's it's our job. I'm, I apologize. Sorry, I got that wrong. It's our job to be sharing the information. It's our job to be reminding the community that these victims' lives matter. Families may have forgiven the killers. Families may have moved on, but the victim is still gone. And we speak for the victim. And we speak for the potential other victims of this perpetrator. I thank all of you who continue to share these cases and continue to be a voice of the victim. There are so many amazing podcasts out there that do such an amazing job. Creme de la Crime and Not Adding Up and True Crime BNB. All of you are so incredible. Continue to be your amazing selves. And all of you remember, we are here for the victims, we are here for their families, and we are here to remind law enforcement, we want these cases solved. Thank you and be safe.